Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Ra, and you are the gods of tomorrow. All right, all right, all right. Let's uh, let's do this shit. Welcome back, everybody, to Gods of Tomorrow. This is episode sixteen. I'm Josh Ra. You can call me Josh. And here we are again. I'm surprised you motherfuckers made it back again. Uh, but I'm excited that you are here. Uh, we have some awesome interviews lined up. We're going to be doing another one here today. But I do want to share with you guys that this, this last week, I really got caught up in trying to figure out how many of the commandments God has broken. And whether or not that's really important or not, I'm not sure. I had somebody tell me that it doesn't matter if he broke his commandments or not because his morality is above the law, yada, yada, yada. And it's not really a covenant where he has to follow them. But I was really hung up on Exodus 24, where he says, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. And you, you know that I will always go off and talk about how Christians have done this with the cross um, or with even Jesus himself. But beyond that point, Genesis 1, 26, 28, God made man in his image after his likeness. Isn't that an immediate uh, challenge against that very commandment that he gave us? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that that connection probably fits. And on top of that, I've had a lot of children, which you guys all know, and they're all made in my image. So I guess I'm just creating shit left and right. But beyond all that, <laughs> let's go ahead and uh, dive into our guest here. Uh, you guys probably know him. You've seen him around. His name is Justin. He is with Bullet Holes in the Bible. Justin, I'm so excited to finally have you here talking one-on-one. Man, me too, Josh. I'm really super stoked to be here, man. It's it's been a crazy ride just getting connected with the deconstruction community on TikTok. And you were one of the first persons I found a couple of weeks back. And uh, it's just been, it's been crazy. It's been, I mean, when you reached out to me to ask me to have, have me on the show, I was like, I have to, of course, of course. So right. your, your, your content's been helpful to me as well. So yeah, it's is I have been like just reading through your content and watching through your videos, almost binge watching some of them because a lot of your research and your methodologies are similar to my own. I'm like, man, I can almost just like, this guy's doing the work for me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I hope to do, literally. I, I really hope that I can take um, the meat and potatoes of scholarly you know, um, studies and just try and spell it out plainly for people who won't, won't ever read that stuff or can't understand some of the verbiage i'm sure you could but there's many out there who, who can't so that's what i'm trying to do <laughs> well that is exciting now you're relatively new to TikTok, so i imagine finding the deconstruction community there has been a challenge but that this isn't really your first community hop you were lodged well within a huge community of christians when you were running uh, what was it called off the top of my head christian truthers right that's right. And, and now you and then you had to essentially leave that community and find another community even on YouTube. Can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that transition? Yeah, sure. And it's, it's not just leaving that community. I'm actually like working against that community in a way because I actually so in 2017, 
I felt called by God, by through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I was in the middle of a long fast and prayer session, and I really felt like God was calling me to start teaching what I under, what I know about uh, Scripture and the extra biblical books and the things I was starting to learn uh, with everyone else on YouTube. So I literally quit my job to focus all of my time and attention to sort of building an online ministry, which I called myself an online missionary when I started out. So my wife, uh, thankfully, she uh, has a really great career and she's very good at it and she loves doing it. So we we're in a place where we said, you know what, I can take the hit of just losing my income and focusing instead on this. So for the first uh, two years, I really didn't make any money at all doing it. And I think on the third year, I made like 30, 30 grand, which <laughs> off of T-shirt sales and stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was never the point anyways, uh, wasn't ever to make money. It was it was to create documentaries that would help Christians understand the, you know, the deeper theologies that they are surrounded by and uh, help them break down sort of the prophetic ideas that are lodged in the Old Testament. And most importantly, I was trying to help people understand how they're supposed to live today. And because that's one of the things that, you know, there's 30,000 Christian denominations because they're all in disagreement about how they're supposed to live today and uh, what to expect in the future as well. So I decided just to heck with that. I'm going to um, I'm going to go to the Greek and go to the Hebrew and try and figure out for myself what faith is and what grace is. And uh, so as I started teaching those things on YouTube, um, I garnered a following pretty quickly. <clears throat> it took took a little bit longer to get 50,000 followers on YouTube than it did on TikTok. On TikTok, it took me uh, five weeks and YouTube, mm -hmm. it took me like three years. <laughs> so um, but so yeah, uh, during that time, I ended up, um, like I said, with 50,000 YouTube followers of my YouTube channel called Christian Truthers. And uh, additionally, I had uh, 350 Patreons and uh, I was, uh, I had a off, sort of a off YouTube mm -hmm. Zoom, Zoom actually, we were using Zoom Bible study uh, groups that I managed. And so we had 800 people sign up for those. And so I broke all of those people into groups of 10, just like Moses did. Um, and, uh, each of the group of 10 had a, a, a little leader in there and we were using the Marco Polo app, which is like a video messaging app, kind of like Snapchat, except you can go back and look at all your history with your conversations. And they were using that to, uh, kind of keep each other accountable, pray for each other and just stay on the up and up on a daily basis. And then on a weekly basis, uh, we would have, um, Bible studies via zoom for men, women, and children on different days. And then every Friday night, um, I would go live for about an hour and a half and teach out of the Torah. So, uh, sounds yeah. Like you, you, it sounds like you dabbled just a little bit then. Like, sounds like you have some knowledge <laughs> around Christianity. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I mean, and of course, that's all coming from, you know, I'm 38, and I was literally born and raised Christian. Um, I did, and there was a period in my 20s where I was less interested in it than I, than I am now, but... Um, by the time I was in my early thirties, I really just, um, fell in love with it. And I really felt, you know, convicted and called to, to, uh, take it more seriously. Cause I, I felt like, um, I was in the Marine Corps for 13 years. So I was mm -hmm. an infantry, infantry machine gunner amongst other things. And so that community and that lifestyle is not very, you know, conducive to Christian morality and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, Marines are really great dudes. I really love them so much, but they're definitely not 
they're definitely not the model citizen in terms of Christian morality, you know? I, I really love that part of your story because one of my dearest friends was a Marine an evangelical, a um, Jesus freak, if you will, went into the Marines and came out of it and lost his faith after wow. the process of being in there. And he was one of the most devout individuals I'd ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. And he too, well, he had a near-death experience while he was there and wow. went to the other side and found that there was nothing. And, mm -hmm. and came out of that and lost his faith. Uh, but that's a story for another time. But one of the things that really strikes me about your story, which I think is similar to many that are now atheists, is that you went so deep into the theology of Christianity and with the purpose of teaching better, to really mm -hmm. guide people, to help people. And in the process of doing that, you broke down the religion and ended up having to step away and go in this has, is layers and layers deep, but it's not real. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. So really, what what really started the the massive change for me and deconstruction process for me? Well, there's there's not just one thing. There's a, many many things that there, as there's with you, I'm sure, and everybody else. You know, there's there's always going to be uh, some small. You know, when you think back about your experience with Christians, you're, you're going to remember like, oh, yeah, they were pretty narcissistic and they were they did hurt me sometimes. And they were, you know, mm -hmm. kind of mean and, and judgmental to me. But those aren't the reasons that ever swayed me. I knew that Christians were, you know, sinful, just like everybody else. So that that part of it, I've, I've received abuse from Christians and non-Christians. So mm -hmm. it's, that alone is not for me a, a, a determining factor. Yeah, people are people. Exactly, exactly. So. <laughs> especially Christians. <laughs> so uh, what really did it for me was <clears throat> I became Torah observant. So uh, as my faith progressed through understanding, um, you know, the early Christian faith and digging into the, the earliest texts I could find and trying to understand the earliest roots of Christianity, uh, I progressively went from being sort of like, um, uh, I guess you would say a just a very serious mainline Christian who just knew a lot about the New Testament to being uh, a Messianic Jew where all I ever did was study the Old Testament for a very long time. And I really was wanting to understand uh, the ins and outs of keeping the Torah. And to the best of my ability, my wife and I kept Torah for about two and a half years. And that means uh, Saturday Sabbaths, which with no work, no electronics, like none of that stuff. Uh, we actually, our, our electronics use came sort of returned after a while. We decided we could use it to watch Bible studies and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, we never ate pork or shellfish or any of the forbidden foods in the, in the Leviticus. We, um, we did only did the biblical feasts. So we never did Christmas cause it's pagan. It's, you know, it still is. Mm -hmm. it, it, uh, we never did Easter cause it's pagan. We never did Halloween or any of those things cause they're all pagan. Uh, all we kept was the seven biblical feasts, which are um, also kept by the Jewish people. So the, the easiest way to describe what I became was is a Messianic Jew. But honestly, I went to many uh, Messianic Jew um, gatherings and mm -hmm. get togethers and Sabbaths. And I found out that they are just as they are just as mainstream and kind of worldly as the regular christians are if they were if they were raised as a messianic jew it's just kind of it's, it's cultural for them too mm -hmm. and so i i thought that i'd find a lot more hardcore scholars there and they were really just as you know not interested <laughs> as mm -hmm. most christians are but they were raised that way so um 
If you don't yeah. mind, I, I, I have a question. You told me nothing was off limits, so I, I want to yeah. throw this one in here a little bit, and, and hopefully this doesn't step on the toes of your wife, but I'm curious in your relationship as you've kind of went from being a New Testament individual to becoming a Messianic Jew to now um, being in the deconstructionist camp, has your wife kind of come along with you in that journey? Have, have those paths come parallel? Has this been a stressor on the relationship? Has it always kind of been this open discussion about spirituality and finding it? Um, because I know there are a lot of couples out there that sometimes divert ways in trying mm-hmm. to figure out what we believe and, and can we make this work with different beliefs or, you know, how does that look for you? Like, how's that journey been? If you don't yeah, mind? That's, that's actually a very good question. One that I'm not actually asked very often. Um, and I, I have to start by saying that I am just the luckiest man in the world. And I really sincerely mean mm-hmm. that. I, I, since the day I married her, uh, Jackie, which was uh, coming up on 10 years married and 11 years together, um, my all of my friends have been in agreement everywhere I go through life that I'm super freaking lucky because Jackie is literally my best friend, like quite literally my best mm-hmm. friend. Um, and this like this isn't just something that I say, like I don't hang out with anybody else, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jackie and I have always been um, the type to. So while she was focusing more on professional life during the day and I was being able to focus more on theology and philosophy and research during the day. And of course, I was also working through uh, two master's degrees during that time, too. So I was also doing a lot of school and stuff like that, mm-hmm. the house and kids. But uh, we would always come together at the end of the day and we would um, decompress and mm-hmm. um, sort of debrief. And what what she would do is I was I was always asking her to, you know, I was always trying to sit there and listen to her for 30 minutes to an hour and just tell me about your work day. What, what happened with your boss, your coworkers, whatever? I think this is why we're so close, honestly, because I know what's going on even with her job, like as, be- as good as her coworkers do. Um, but she's the same, always been the same with me. And so she's, well, you know, we, we ended up, we end up staying all night up sometimes just talking about uh, the stuff that I'm looking at. She wants to watch the same stuff I watch. She wants to read the same books I read mm-hmm. and check it out. And uh, we have just literally stayed in sync the entire time. And I know that, um, especially when I was running Christian Truthers ministry, I did uh, marriage counseling and um, a, a bunch of, I guess a lot of emails and things like that. And we, we are definitely a rare, um, rare in that way. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know that many people, as soon as they go from Christianity to Torah observance, even just that jump, like, Hey, we're not going to do Sabbath this way anymore. We're not going to do Christmas anymore. That alone is enough to really start causing a lot of friction in families. Um, so, I can't even imagine how much harder it is to go from Christianity to just being agnostic atheist or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I haven't experienced that, but I've, I've heard, a, I've seen a lot of pain and divorce even because of it. So um, I'm, I can sit here and honestly tell you that um, I could probably just get up and let Jackie come in here and she could probably answer the questions <laughs> for me. I'm not even kidding. Like she really, she really cares a lot about this stuff and I'm very, very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, uh, and, and I don't want to steal your thunder and having that relationship with my wife and myself are similar. And I've seen you and Jackie kind of in different uh, 
realms talking together and you seem very in sync and i yeah. rarely see that in other couples and so it's a beautiful thing so congratulations that's awesome yeah yeah man thank you yeah, yeah. i saw and by the way uh, um my wife's been watching your wife's tiktoks too lately and mm -hmm. she's loving the content over there also so yeah yeah she does uh spiritual coaching is primarily what she calls it so she does it and, and i and you may know this from watching some of my content but i'm a licensed master social worker i've been doing that work for a while as a therapist for a long time so wow. even when i stepped away from Christianity, I didn't really kick out the leg of spirituality as being an important factor of being human. I see that as mm -hmm. being something that people explore and need to experience in one way or another, no matter how you define that. Um, right. Some people find it by being in nature. Some people find it through meditation. Some folks find it through, you know, relationships and connection with others. Some people find it in seeking, you know, uh, a connection with a higher entity or a greater power, mm -hmm. a greater force. I don't really judge that. I'm cool with people doing whatever they want to do in that realm, as long as they're not indoctrinating others and forcing it onto mm -hmm. others and saying you have yeah. to be this way. That's it. That's really it. That's that's yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, I'm very open to that too. I mean, initially when I um, left Christianity and started realizing how much there how many problems there are with it, like theologically, historically, I was like, look, I don't believe anything anymore. You know, period. But the more I've uh, sort of chilled out over the last year and a half and started reading again and getting into uh, especially studying uh, near-death experiences, studying mm -hmm. reincarnation. I'm really excited to make a, a documentary about reincarnation mm -hmm. um, and just also, um, you know, psychedelic therapies, psilocybin mm -hmm. mushrooms and uh, mm -hmm. DMT and all that. The more I start studying that, the more I'm like, okay, so I'm not going to just like, I don't know if we should call it spiritual or not, but I'm not mm -hmm. totally done with it. You know, um, I'm just done with the version of it that judges and attacks people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yep. I think that is fair. So I, I do want to dive into that and we got plenty of time to talk about this. I've always, I, I, I know with you essentially being in the same camp as the Messianic Jew, and, and of course, being in the Christian camp as well, there's probably a lot of knowledge that's in your head around early churches, their formulation, mm -hmm. how those ideas yeah. kind of got put together, how they spread, um, and then especially that relationship between the early Jewish people and those that were stepping into those first churches that were created by Paul uh, mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. those time periods. So I do want to explore that a little bit. I've always Absolutely. kind of seen the New Testament as a marriage between some Jewish content and Hellenistic Greek content and just marrying mm -hmm. these mythologies and putting them together. And that's what Paul was preaching because he kind of had a foot in both world. But mm -hmm. if you would just kind of lead yeah. us down your own studies and what you've been looking at there. Oh, that is, that is a really wonderful way of, of, you know, um, overview. Um, now my, my studies first started with studying Paul himself, um, from a, and when I, this is when I was still believing that the Bible was accurate and inspired and stuff mm -hmm. and actually studying Paul himself and comparing his teachings to the Torah and comparing his teachings to Jesus. This is when I was Torah observant, of course, I quickly realized that there's a lot of problems with Paul and Paul. I, I concluded actually that he's a false apostle and I made a video series called 50 reasons to never quote Paul again. And that was actually designed to tell Christians like, look, this dude's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, <clears throat> But I really it's funny because now looking back on everything, I look at it from a from a um, historical viewpoint, mm -hmm. not believing that any of it was, you know, actually true, uh, literally true. And uh, it's really it's really interesting because Paul, what most people I wish if people could understand Paul 
and and Hellenization of the Jews, mm-hmm. especially and those two. How like like you said, how those two come together. I mean, there'd be no argument in my opinion. There'd be no argument left in my opinion. So you know, it, it's funny because so the, what the Hellenization of the Jews is, as you already know, is is the uh, Greco-Roman sort of influencing of Jewish people. And uh, the Hellenization period goes back, I think, to 400 or 500 BC. Mm-hmm. BC, uh, yeah. And um, from from then, so 500 years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene or Paul ever shows up on the scene, there's already these sort of Jewish uh, philosophers starting to mix the works of Plato and the works of Homer. And you see a lot of these uh, Greco-Roman ideas start slipping into their their thinking. Yeah. And the Jewish elite were very much in in contact with and tangled up with the Greco-Roman elite also. So you see um, you see a lot of the Greco-Roman influence just growing and growing and growing closer to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem leading up to the first century where we have this scene where Paul comes on the scene. And yeah, Paul, Paul, I mean, both both in the text of the New Testament and otherwise, you know, Paul uh, tells us plainly that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, you know, mm-hmm. from the tribe of Benjamin, you know. Um, but then he also says that he's a Roman citizen, Roman-born mm-hmm. citizen. And of course, after he has his vision on the road to Damascus, the first time he sees his his version of Jesus, which is different than everyone else's version of Jesus, by the way. Right. Um, when he sees his version of Jesus. He, after he does, he actually leaves and goes to um, Arabia for two years to stay. And mm-hmm. Arabia was where uh, uh, some of the Roman elite families were living. And actually, Paul mentions the name of, I, can't, I wish I could remember off the top of my head, but Paul mentions the name of one of these families in his letters in the New Testament mm-hmm. as, as one of his friends. And so you see this connection that Paul was deeply tied into the elite um, Roman people. Mm-hmm. He was also deeply tied into the, you know, Pharisee uh, elite Jewish people, um, and what he came bringing with him, as I showed in one of my videos, is a lot of Plato and a lot of Socrates and a lot of Aristotle, and that's what his gospel really was: was taking these ideas. That, but it's funny because it'd be it'd be tempting for someone who doesn't know this to think, oh, well, Paul was, you know. Uh, a very smart guy and he was you know he was on his own program and all this stuff but the reality is is that's not true he was really just the outcome of a whole much larger uh, group of hellenized jews who had very similar thinking already and they were already sort of uh, amalgamating the the greek ideas into jewish ideas and trying to to make those work and, and kind of mix them together and i think uh there's a, a quote by plato who says that uh the torah if the Torah was designed to, to prepare uh, the Jews to receive Jesus, then uh, philosophy, uh, like Greek philosophy, is the, is the everyone else's version of that that prepared them to, to accept Jesus. Mm-hmm. So you see how, like, even in that one statement, there's this merging of two different cultures or coming together to create this this uh, new religion called Christianity. Absolutely. I, I've had conversations before, and I'd love your take on this. This is kind of speculation, but you might be able to add some weight to maybe even this argument, is that we know that the Jewish people were being persecuted for years, even all the way back to Herod. I mean, they didn't have the power. They didn't have the influence. They were um, essentially 
being paraded around like cattle in the Middle East in many ways. Uh, so mm-hmm. they didn't have the power to push forward their ideas and their conceptualizations and the things that they wanted to do. If the early Jews had the power of Rome, we would all be Jewish. I, we, we would, or not, maybe not mm-hmm. Jewish, but that religion would be dominating the world much more than Christianity did. It's because right. Paul was able to take these Orphic doctrines that come out of Plato and Hellenistic mm-hmm. time period and mirror that and mix it with Judaism and his connections with those elites that allowed it to catch like fire and spread like it did yes. through that time. Yes. If that hadn't happened, Christianity would have died off as a cult thousands of years ago. Absolutely. And that's why you see Paul emphasizing that he is the disciple to the gentiles mm-hmm. and he he literally we use every time he goes in the new testament according to the new testament every time paul goes into uh jerusalem to basically pay homage to the other 12 and actually pay them bribe them um because he always brought them money um you see that they basically we all, are, we all need a friend like paul I know, yeah. <laughs> hey let me uh join you guys yeah anyway you know this is assuming of course any of this is accurate but um, so Jerusalem, you see in the, in the New Testament, Jerusalem uh, is where the, the 12 stayed and they continued operating out of there. And by the way, they weren't being hassled, mm-hmm. haggled with or anything. So you have no, you have no, the, none of these stories like Paul has of going to Jerusalem and everyone wants to kill him and kicks him out. Or he goes to uh, Asia and everyone wants to kill him and they kick him out of Asia too. And, you know, all, that only happens with Paul. The, the other twelve, for some reason, were different, and I, and I, I, I think I know what the reason is, based at least on the narrative that we can look at, is that the twelve were still Jewish. They were still mm-hmm. keeping the the law. Mm-hmm. They were the original, like, uh, and that goes back to like before I deconverted or deconstructed, I had whittled my way down to becoming what I called an Ebionite. Uh, so an Ebionite, the Ebionites were like, a, the, like the very, very first Christians. And they were 100% Torah observant Jewish in every single way. Um, and they continued keeping the feast and nothing changed mm-hmm. for them, except they also had faith that Jesus Christ was the son of God and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And that there was a, they believed that this was um, a necessary new chapter, basically, because the temple had fallen. So now they can't do their sacrifices in the temple. So they're going to stick with this Jesus sacrifice mm-hmm. thing. But, and just uh, for those that are listening, this is prior to the modern eschatology of how Christians view things. And that has to do with like the afterlife, uh, judgment, death, uh, the resurrection. Uh, this is prior to mm-hmm. um, our ideas of Satan and hell and heaven. Ebionites would not recognize any of those conceptualizations that we have in Christianity today. That is before all of that developed. So, right. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, Justin. But No, yeah. No, yeah. You're right on. You're right on. Yeah, so um, Paul uh, essentially was, um, you know, like I said, he his focus was always to go to the Greeks, mm-hmm. so-called, into the northern kingdom of Israel, where most where they had already been largely in the northern kingdom of of Israel, which was broken into two, you know, mm-hmm. two nations essentially, yeah. a Sumerian region, was already like you know worldly compared to Jerusalem in their minds, so. Uh, it was easier for Paul to do his work up there, and of course, over in Greece and places like that, it's much easier because they were already familiar with the Stoic, you know, Platonic philosophies that he was sent, he was sharing with them. But what I think's very, very interesting is that some like we we just assume when we listen to Paul's gospel or anything like that, we just assume this is so new and this is like some great 
new good news and that's why it was accepted because it was so powerful like this 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 message must just be so powerful to make this spread so like this the way it did but that's that's totally what we're missing most christians are missing uh is that the reason it was so easily adopted was because they already believed this stuff they already believed most of this stuff they just called it something different so when paul's like when paul's talking about you know oh the son of god you know died and we got to take we're going to do the eucharist and we're going to drink his blood and eat his body and he oh he rose from the dead and um you know he was born from a virgin mother and all this stuff all the greeks listening would have been like oh yeah 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 that sounds like my other I also have mm-hmm. in my in my room I have three four three or four more other deities like that uh, mm-hmm. like Dionysus and you know Romulus was another mm-hmm. one and you know um so they're like yeah I, so to them it was it wasn't a matter of like um it didn't sound like know. a crazy tale it was a well accepted story that was applied to many yeah. godmen right right <laughs> yeah seriously i mean there there so there was so much polytheism too uh, mm-hmm. in greek greece so it, it just sounded like something that they've already seen before and are already messing with. And it just didn't, it was an easy thing to go ahead and say, Oh, okay. So Paul's telling us that the elites in Rome and Jerusalem are really into this Jesus thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should switch from Dionysus to Jesus. Cause that's more popular, you know, and it's, it wasn't necessarily like this, uh, this we have this story of you know the early christian church just being on fire for god and growing so fast because the holy spirit had them doing miracles yeah. and it's like no that that's not that's not how it actually happened it just sort of slowly grew among the elites and then uh, trickled down to everyone else so so i'm you curious know. in in what you've seen would it be safe to say that it's almost like them just kind of picking up another patron god or another patron deity to put yeah. in the house it's not like they are losing even connection with Dionysus. it's like oh right. i'll get an altar to jesus put up as well and i'll pay him homage for certain things as well kind of right. go for gods for whatever they're praying for and it wasn't really until christianity 25 yeah when christianity became the mm-hmm. roman you know religion yeah. that they were like oh now we're doing away with all the rest of the gods exactly right yep as soon as that happened i think it was 325 the council of nicaea i think that was like the beginning where they were like uh you know it's the official religion of rome Mm -hmm. and uh they also talked about the trinity for some reason in there which is funny because the trinity is also another very well accepted roman pagan greco idea like it wouldn't have been hard for the for the romans to be like oh okay so we'll just do the one then okay cool Mm -hmm. like you know um it's just funny like for us looking back we're mm-hmm. like it must have taken miracles for these things to happen the way they did and it's like not really you know it's just uh kings with power decided this is what they were going to go with because they liked you know I-, I think they liked the control mechanisms of it honestly mm-hmm. you know i think the frustration is that i found in my own journey is how much we aren't taught about that history in a well-educated way to to allow us to kind of make a decision for it i mean especially here in uh, western culture where we see that children are born into families that already have this belief system this theology that they then indoctrinate their kids into it and pull them into that and it just continues in this pattern um Mm -hmm. i can't remember the name off the top of my head of the individual that said you know the best way to determine what the religion will be for an individual is to put them into a family that has that same religion and you can keep it going. And this is why we saw things uh, kind of pushed onto cultures by Christians for hundreds of years to force cultures into Christianity. I mean, even in England, 
you were killed if you denied the Trinity up until like 1860. Uh, just, wow. it, it was against the law not to believe in the Trinity. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. I mean, I, I totally believe that. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, once it really took hold, it became, it, you know, it became a form of government. It really was like we look back and we see how, especially in England, the Cardinals had such uh, control over government mm -hmm. in, in all these European countries, you know, um, and then you have King Henry, of course, wants a divorce. And so we end up with the Church of England. But mm -hmm. like you see, like just even even beyond that, just how much control the Catholic Church or, or I should just say the Christian Church in general mm -hmm. really had because they have, you know, it seems it seems like at every high post in government there was a cardinal right there to like give his approval or non-approval. You know, it's crazy power structure. It's it's amazing that um, you know um, it, it's 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 weird how at first it had to be it had to be like a sort of tangible force where you force this Christian thinking and force this structure of government and this forces mm -hmm. with laws and all this. But now it's it's just it's developed so extensively into the like you said generationally a family through family mm -hmm. through family that now it's like uh it's it's a it's it's in our own heads you know mm -hmm. no one's you know rome's not here anymore you know beating you if you don't believe in the trinity or whatever i mean not rome but england mm -hmm. but um but we beat up ourselves like if we dare question you know the trinity or or it, you know if you question the trinity you might get kicked out of your church or lose a friend group or something yeah. or you know people might just think you're you're working for a demon now or something so now it's more of a social a social thing mm -hmm. and a psychological thing than it than it was back then back then it was just like you said it was very tangible and very like forced so. Yeah, and now we have thirty-year-olds all over the country going through existential crises, trying to figure out who they are and what they believe. Because, like I mentioned earlier, I can't just we we can't just kick out the spiritual leg out from underneath the table of what makes us human. We have physical elements, psychological elements, emotional elements, and spiritual elements, mm -hmm. and people don't know what to do when they've spent three decades of their life believing something, leaning on something, having a definitive reason for who they are and why they're here and what their purpose is and then that just gets kicked out from underneath mm -hmm. them they just can't let it go and it mm -hmm. causes them to go into this dark place of just like who am i what, what am i even doing right. now right yeah yeah totally i mean that's that's exactly what you know people who are deconstructing in my opinion the first thing they should do in my opinion is look for that you know that inherent morality that exists in everyone mm -hmm. and and learn who you are as a human being you know um for me it, it helped to study um dao and it helped to study mm -hmm. some buddhist concepts and um just really realize that like there's so many other alternative uh not religions but alternative ideas and answers about who you are why you're here why you're still mm -hmm. important and why you're still relevant and i think christians like that's to them, that's the the biggest uh, fear. I think is once they realize, okay, well, this is if this is all fake, then what, I just like I feel like I'm being cast into this area of mm -hmm. darkness where I don't know what's going to happen out there and who am I going to trust and what am I going to do now? You know, you're really on your own, like mm -hmm. in, in in a big way. That takes a lot of bravery to to deconstruct. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you that the one which you I'm sure you know this from your testimony when we started this conversation is that the one up that Christians have 
on non-believers or those of other belief systems for the most part is their sense of community. Having that once a week, or in, you're in my case, we're going three or four times a week to a church where you're being with your community and you have that support and that encouragement um, is reinforcing. You, you feel connected. And the moment you deconstruct, you oftentimes feel alone. So you, you have to replace that with something. And many atheists, agnostics, uh, even those of other practices or belief systems, they have a hard time finding that community and getting centered and having some sense of feeling supported. And that can be super difficult. So as you're questioning those things, you, ha you have to find someone to guide you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, when I only had Jackie at first, my wife, you know, mm -hmm. and that's thankfully that's grown over the last year, year and a half. But I, yeah, man, I, we felt very isolated and mm -hmm. we were, we were scrambling to find people who, you know, um, I mean, we were surrounded by people who hated us mostly mm -hmm. at that point. Cause I, I was always so public about what I believe. And when I, you know, when I did deconstruct, I, I took my Christian truthers channel and mm -hmm. I changed it. I changed the name of it to bullet holes in the Bible. And mm -hmm. I took all my Christian content down and started putting up deconstruction content. Um, so we were not only isolated, but we felt like everyone on the outside was just screaming at us. You know, yeah. that's how we, that's how it felt for us. Cause we only knew these, we were only connected to these Christian groups. I mean, we we're so isolated. Like we were in Torah, for example, mm -hmm. Torah observant. My parents, we don't even talk to them because they hated Torah observance. They hated mm -hmm. how religious I was before, you know? Uh, so we were already, we were just literally like flying solo, but we, um, one of the first things we did when we kind of got our bearings was put together a Facebook group and mm -hmm. we started inviting people who uh, we were starting to find some people who were, you know, in the same place we were. And mm -hmm. still, it's only like at 120 people in that group, but it's just nice, you know, to have somewhere you go and just, just vent or, or just put up a silly meme about something you learned and, mm -hmm. and have people like, you know, kind of giving you that reassurance. Cause like you said, you lose all that reassurance, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We, we have a discord group that we do the exact same thing. And there's different channels to talk about deconstruction and Satan and hell and heaven and, you know, even metaphysical stuff or pagan practices, other belief systems, mm -hmm. and people just share resources. And we only have a couple hundred people in there, but yeah. it's such a supportive community and people know they can always come in there without judgment. Yeah, you that's, that's, that's the best part about being, <laughs> you know, outside of Christianity is like, mm -hmm. we can all really get along. I mean, there's really no reason for us to, to not, you know, mm -hmm when everyone's at a place of being deconstructed because you 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 know you, the last thing you want is to start forcing your beliefs down someone's throat like we all don't want that you know so it's really nice and comforting to just see people have so many different perspectives and like i said deconstruction TikTok has been a mm -hmm. lifesaver too you yeah know? i feel like i stole you a little bit because we changed we kind of changed gears and went that direction anything else that you wanted to add with um, Dionysus, uh, maybe even Plato's kind of stepping into Orphicism and how that influenced things and with Paul. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So um, I, I really wish every Christian knew who Dionysus was. Uh, so Dionysus is a, uh, a wine god who is also the god of, um, uh, what is it, sacrifice mm -hmm. and the god of, um, uh, What's it called? He's he's known as the God who comes, like he basically a God who comes to like who reaches out and, and basically mm -hmm. makes contact with human people. Mm -hmm. And Dionysian cults are traced back to about 1300 BC, so long way back. Mm -hmm. And I think the oldest relief, like actual tangible 
uh, picture they have of Dionysus is from like 570 BC. And it actually is a picture of him and it even says Dionysus on it from 570 BC. So we know that um, we know that he goes way back and he's very involved. And so there is, of course, a lot of uh, literature about him. There was a really famous play written about him by a guy named Euripides. And um, Euripides um, wrote a book called The Bacchae or the play Bacchae. called The Bacchae, right? Mm -hmm. And so The Bacchae was actually performed at the theater of Dionysus for the first time in 405 BCE. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really I really have to encourage everyone to, to read The Bacchae if they haven't before. Now, when you look at Dionysus, it's not like, um, it's just so frustrating. Like, for example, if you go on Google and put in, is Jesus Dionysus? You know, well, all you're going to get is, a, for one, a thousand Christian articles telling you all the differences between Jesus and Dionysus. That's all mm -hmm. they can do. That's all they can do is say, oh, but look how many differences there are. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, like, yeah, okay. That's that's easy. Anyone can compare two things and say, look at all the differences. But that's not the misses the point. The point is Dionysus is the as a demigod. He's half man, um, half God born from depending on how you who which story born from Zeus and simile. Um, he's he was killed, uh, torn to pieces and eaten by the Titans. And um, uh, <laughs> he was resurrected. Um, After three days, right? I I don't remember if it was the three days on him specifically, but okay. there are very that, that is an OT. So I think uh, Osiris was in the underworld for three days. Yes, I believe. He was. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so and then you so basically when you look at just the motifs that they use in telling stories about Dionysus, it gets real creepy and weird fast because. Uh, for one, you see that Paul borrowed his road to Damascus experience, conversion experience completely from that play, the Bacchae, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the Bacchae, you have this character uh, being Dionysus is being written about uh, and he's going around and trying to make converts. And one of the things he does is uh, he gives out wine to people and uh, his his uh, he has like a ton of women. He was known to be surrounded by women like almost like brides to an extent. Mm -hmm. And it basically, people believe that if you, um, this is kind of a separate side note, people believe that when you did like a Eucharist ritual and ate the body and drank mm -hmm. the blood of Dionysus, you would be indwelled with the spirit of Dionysus. Mm -hmm. And so uh, very interesting there. But so in this play by Euripides, um, Dionysus is this demigod who's showing up and he's appearing to people um, to let them know that he's, alive that he's still alive mm -hmm. um and um he as he does this showing up here and there in different lands he's growing his his group he's getting a bigger following and so there's uh, a a character named pentheus and i think it's so wonderful that his name even starts with the p like paul's there's this character pentheus who's going around and he's persecuting um mm -hmm. and trying to to condemn and shut down this grow, growing dionysian mm -hmm. cult that's happening and on his way to to do that, he's met by this aberration of light. It's Dionysus. He shows himself, and he's he literally uses the same phrase that Paul uses, um, in or that's used about Paul in Acts. And it says, in in what Dionysus or what Euripides wrote about Dionysus was, Dionysus says, you know, Pentheus. Um, he, he's like, why are you persecuting me? 
uh, is hard for thee to kick against the pricks since thou art immortal, but I am a God, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, you have the almost, almost the identical quote Paul uses when Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus. He's like, Paul, Paul, why persecutest thou me? Uh, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He says the same thing. It's the same story. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, why would, if Paul was a, a real character, and we can, you know, be sure of that. And his historical, as a historical character, is if he's properly, you know, um, being represented by the Book of Acts and all the books that he wrote himself, then why would you need to copy? Why would you need to copy these other stories for that? You know, it just it really to me just, oh, it's bad. So yeah, I just keep thinking like, how is not just a kick straight <clears throat> in the teeth and recognizing that that mirroring itself? Paul wrote thirteen out of what the twenty four books of the new yes. testament it is primarily the church of paul that you are worshiping right. when you get in there and you you have his one experience with jesus being copied from a previous play that was written <laughs> he, he didn't know jesus he never met jesus he never saw jesus he right. took one thing out of a play and made a religion mm -hmm. out of it <laughs> yeah and, and actually paul's paul's first writings about jesus came 20 years after jesus would have died so he literally didn't know mm -hmm. anyone um, well, I guess you could say that he he met the twelve disciples eventually, but mm -hmm. he literally had, supposedly had no contact with them, knew nothing about him. And that's why and he never just, speaks of his miracles. He never quotes him. That's right. He never puts that's anything right. like that within his own stories. That's exactly right. That's exactly. Right. I can't recommend enough a book by Dr. Richard Carrier. I don't know if you've read it or not. It's called Jesus from Outer Space, and um, Dr. Richard Carrier is one of the most brilliant-minded uh, scholars. On uh, he he studies. Uh, ancient history, but he's focused all of his attention on the New Testament. Not all of mm -hmm. it, but a lot of it. And he's written uh, very good books about it. He tends to be uh, on the stage. Um, you know who Bart Ehrman is? Oh, yeah. yeah. Him and Bart Ehrman kind of go back and forth on the historicity versus mm -hmm. mythicism. So Andrew Carrier, or Dr. Carrier, uh, Richard, not Car Andrew, he is, um, he's a mythicist. And he's actually the first mythicist PhD to pass peer review and get his work accepted into as a scholarly, wow. a scholarly work. So we can literally, based on scholarly uh, criteria, take him very seriously. So um, his, in his book, Jesus from Outer Space, he shows you very cleanly what you just basically said. Paul, uh, Paul's version of Jesus was the first version of Jesus. Now, of course, we know Jesus came from Dionysus and all these other motifs. Mm -hmm. But when they did build Jesus, Paul was the first one to start doing that, mm -hmm. right? And calling him Jesus. So, uh, or Jesus, actually. So, um, when he, uh, I lost my train of thought here. Um, oh, so when Paul does this, his version of Jesus is not earthly. Mm -hmm. in any way shape or form and this is something that's like is huge again this is something which all christians knew the first version of jesus that paul wrote about was not a man who walked around the earth and ate food and hung out with his disciples paul never mentions a virgin birth or a birth at all paul never mentions nazareth nazareth mm -hmm. bethlehem paul never mentions any of the miracles of christ paul never mentions anything about the uh, Passover or the yeah the Passover or the crucifixion like like the beatings and the all the stuff he never mentions anything Jesus says mm -hmm. he literally doesn't mention anything about Jesus like his earthly ministry whatsoever so if you only take and and then Paul like an here's a perfect example uh, Paul 
it wrote in Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, spiritual or principalities uh, uh, and spiritual forces in high places, right? Mm -hmm. So Paul's version of Jesus is a version that only is like an angel of light who comes, shows up and reveals himself to people and then disappears again. I feel Paul like I'm just... I feel like I'm just piggybacking it off of you, but that is just another example of how Paul is Hellenized because these are not Jewish beliefs. Jews no, do not right. believe in the spiritual, existential, uh, lifting up to a other world, heavenly place. That is a place reserved only for the divine. That's where God is. Even in the resurrection, they do not get resurrected to heaven. They don't go there. This is why the gospels show Jesus as flesh and blood with holes in his hands, eating fish that you can mm -hmm. touch and feel because there's mm -hmm. not this spiritual form of him, which Paul does not reflect in his own writings. This shows, exactly. this shows his influence from the Greeks. Right. Yeah. So Paul's understanding of who Jesus is, which, which he, again, he's the first author about this mm -hmm. guy. So, <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of weird that, and, and you're right out, you're right on the church actually teaches Paul. They don't teach Jesus. It's very rare that a church actually uh, does everything according to Jesus. It's very rare. They usually do Paul everything according to Paul. Mm -hmm. um, so if we go off of Paul's original version of Jesus, he wasn't a dude who came and was born of a virgin, walked around, grew up, did some crazy miracles. John the Baptist baptized him, and then he went on to walk around. And then none, Paul doesn't know about any of that. He doesn't know about any of that. <laughs> so... Um, when uh, even when Paul, you know, if you look at the uh, the New Testament, even when Paul refers to the other twelve, he's assuming that they also received revelation the same way he did. He doesn't mm -hmm. say anything about them like hanging out with them and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and again, that's this is the the earliest writings of Paul were twenty years after Jesus supposedly died. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, this is a big point too. Is Jerusalem was a very literate city compared to most of the earth at that time. Mm -hmm. I think one of the anthropologists, uh, yeah, anthropologists that I watched a video on, uh, I, I shouldn't, I need to source this, but I think she said that she thinks that at least 12% of the adults mm -hmm. in Jerusalem would have known how to write and read Hebrew because mm -hmm. it's critical to their religion. And not a single person did, not a single person wrote a single word about mm -hmm. anything to do with anything about jesus christ mm -hmm. until paul shows up in the 50s and he starts writing about this angel version yeah, right and, so and we're talking about and correct me if i'm misinterpreting this but we're talking about a culture of individuals ancient jews whose entire culture was based off of writing down their religion and sharing stories yeah. and having just books upon books of this to share and tell the importance mm -hmm. of all these things Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you know, the new Testament says like the first 5,000 people who converted to Christianity were Jews. That's, it does hard to believe that no one wrote anything down. That's just insane mm -hmm. to me. You know, that would be like their utmost important thing for them to do. You know, mm -hmm. is that the story of when Paul goes and says that five, that, is it Paul that said there was all these witnesses to his, uh, his conversion? Yeah. No, no, not, he to said, his, not to his conversion. He says that there's all these like witnesses to the resur or to the crucifixion and the resurrection. But he, yeah, but, yeah. He, but he mentions a city that's fuck tons away that nobody's going to travel to forty years later and go start questioning people about what they saw. Like it's like take my word for it. God yeah. told me there was all these people that saw it. <laughs> well, again, his version of the resurrected Jesus was one that just reveals himself to you. It's like mm -hmm. Paul believed that he had been, he had seen the resurrection 
the wit he had witnessed mm -hmm. the resurrection of Christ, even though he hadn't. He talks like he has because he thinks it's all a vision, you know. Yeah. So he he believed himself also to be a witness. So when he refers to other people being witnesses, it's it's the same way. I know there's um there's only one argument against Paul where he he uh, about him knowing Jesus was a man, and that's one of the ones I think that um, I thought was actually worth mentioning is that he calls James the brother of Jesus. He goes James the brother of Jesus, whatever whatever he call, he mentions that. Um, but Paul uses the word the brothers of Jesus and the brothers to men to talk about every single person who's Christian already. He's mm -hmm. constantly doing that. So he's not actually talking about Jesus Christ, brother James, who's on earth. But, so that's one of the points people get stuck on. They're like, oh, he mentions James and his brother. And it's like, well, he calls everyone brother the brothers mm -hmm. of Jesus. Yeah. So um, but other than that, like uh it's pretty it's pretty amazing once you realize that it wasn't even until another 20 or 30 years after paul finished writing his his letters and yeah you're right um the general the general idea is that he wrote up to 13 of the new the 27 yeah. new testament books but um for sure i think all scholars agree for sure he wrote seven at least yeah, yeah. and those are all the ones that end with ian's you know mm -hmm. yeah i've talked so, about that before how those other ones are forgeries or aren't necessarily written by paul but we, we kiss hard we, to we know don't, we it's don't hard. know yeah 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 there's and there's a lot of stuff added and it's the same with peter i mean like peter didn't write first first and second peter yeah. we know for a fact that peter didn't write second peter um and second peter actually is the only place in the new testament where one of the disciples backs up paul Mm -hmm. um, where he says Peter calls him a brother of the Lord or something like that. If you ever want to um, do a fun study, this is just a side note. Second uh, Peter and Jude are actually retaliation letters against the book of Enoch, and almost like 70% of those are actually quotes out of the book of Enoch of them arguing against it. And Christians oftentimes utilize it to try to like argue hell and fallen angels and stuff like that. But if you read it closely, and mm -hmm. of course at this time we didn't have like quotation marks and stuff to put around the right. text, but if you read it, they're essentially saying if you believe this bullshit that you read in this book, you got to mm -hmm. at least know this much. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to take those side by side and read them and mm -hmm. see how it was really just a an argument against other literature that was going about at the time and somehow yeah. we, we took like these single page letters and put it into the bible and said oh this is oh this yeah is this makes sense for us <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right like uh, jude like quotes an entire paragraph from an enoch word for word like just it, straight up boom, boom, boom. yeah yep. and peter like you said peter mentions it too you know what's funny too is you mentioned like side by sides if you take the book of james and the book of galatians and side by side them mm. it looks like they're arguing with each other and i, I believe that they may have been so james would have been one of the other 12 mm -hmm. you know if if well, we don't even know for sure he wrote it but they mm -hmm. attribute it to him um but uh they totally contradict each other back and forth back and forth you know one's like James is like, faith without works is dead. And Paul's like, our works are like filthy right rags. You know, it's like, it's going back and forth. It's crazy. So you can see that they, uh, you know, that was originally my first reason for dropping Paul was like, it looks like the other disciples don't agree with him. But uh, yeah, man. So going back to, you know, Dionysus, you, um, you have pretty much everyone, everyone in the Greco-Roman world would have been familiar with mm -hmm. uh, Orphic rituals or rituals that, uh, relating to, uh, the writings of Orpheus and Orpheus wrote about Dionysus. And so um, when you really look <laughs> at the stuff going on, uh, by the way, I wanted to mention this and I almost got, uh, I got off track, but in, uh, in another really interesting about the Bacchae by Euripides again, mm -hmm. 
again, 405 BC. He has stories that really parallel a lot of stories in Acts. Actually, there is a story of uh, people getting an, who are uh, in, an, in a prison and there's an earthquake and it shakes the chains off of their hands and then they mm-hmm. get free. And then Pentheus, you know, freaks out, runs in with a sword to to uh, see what's going on and they stay behind and they're like, we've stayed, you know, <laughs> and then Dionysus shows up and it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, this is like the story of Paul and Silas and all that, mm-hmm. you know sort of being told way before Paul and Silas. <laughs> so you, when you when you really that I, it's really funny because we take this stuff so seriously mm-hmm. in life or death and we've seen how it is life or death. People will kill each other over this stuff. But I'm just I can't express enough how if we were raised, you know, in 350 BC in Greece mm-hmm. or Athens and we went to the schools everyone else went or, or you know, just were on the up and up with philosophy and stuff. Mm-hmm. We would we would think that Jesus is such a joke because we would already see like, oh, well, mm-hmm. OK, this part of Jesus came from this. This part of Jesus came from that. And and all these pieces come together and you're like, oh, well, if you know, Jesus can't be real, obviously, because none of these other people were real that he copied, you know, yeah. so. Now, before listeners like I, I don't want you guys to like misinterpret what Justin is saying. I don't think he's advocating this. Like, don't go off and start worshiping Dionysus. Um, because (laughs) those stories as well have older traditions and thematics that are shared. I mean, Inanna and Sumerian myth, some of those same aspects are shown within this. I was sharing with you some stuff that's found in Slavic mythology that's also replicated and things that we Mm -hmm. see here too. And so you you can keep taking these stories back into other mythologies. It's just the further back we go, the less evidence we have or the less skills we had as a species to copy down things to write things down and this is another reason why i think that was paul's as successful as he was he had the ability to travel he had the ability to have scribes copy letters and copy manuscripts they were able to bring people into gatherings where there was civilization built and worship centers that were built where people could come in and read these to large crowds and spread it those didn't exist at prior times to that level with the same means that he had and this is why christianity took off why he was such a great pr person because mm-hmm. it couldn't have happened prior to that point. That's a great point, man. That's a great point. Plus, he had the freedom to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there was official state religions in some places and times. So, and the fact that he was able to freely run around and and mm-hmm. do this, you know, just without being killed, is, is that alone is, is gay, like you said. But, yeah, I agree with you, man. It's, it's you know, he had the most uh, writing power. And his letters were just copy, copy, copied. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we we keep going. I actually wanted to talk to you about the Messiah Complex as well, the big project sure. that you worked on. I don't, yeah, I know we're kind of we've been talking for a while, but it, but if there's anything else to add in there, you working on the Messiah Complex, which was this project that you undertook to again trying to help people understand about Jesus and why he was the Messiah and mm-hmm. why, and kind of helping support your belief. Um, this actually proved to you that he was not the Messiah. Now, for That's those correct. for some of those that have done like a deep dive study into early Judaism, we know that Jesus wasn't the first or the last Messiah that was crucified or killed in some way that did not fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. There was many in the years prior to him, as well as some, I want to say even up to like 200, 300 um, CE, where we Mm -hmm. saw those that tried to essentially be that Messiah and failed in doing so. But if you could, what was some of the things I think that told you that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that why the Jews rejected him and, and why he wasn't yeah. that individual. 
Great question. Yeah. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the Messiah complex proving that you could find Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And but the problem was, is I wasn't considering the, you know, the chronological historicity of this stuff. I just assumed that this is the word of God. So nothing else really mattered. So if I could find Jesus, um, if I could find all these characteristics of Jesus in Joshua, and I could find all these characteristics of Jesus in Moses. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I had a side-by-side a, a -side comparison. I think it was like 20, Moses did this, Jesus did this, Moses did this. And I was like, look, I'm going to just destroy these people and show them that Jesus is all over the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had this epiphany near the end of my article series that, um, you know, Jesus' Jesus's authors could have been copying these ideas about Moses because Moses said there'll be a prophet like me that will come one day, blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. you could easily say, okay, let's build this Jesus character to look like Moses, you know, and to look like the conqueror, Joshua. Mm -hmm. um, so once I started seeing that, I'm like, okay, so I gotta, I gotta be fair then with the text and the historicity of this. So I went, let's, uh, let's go see. I, I thought these prophecies really were, were mm -hmm. boomers. I, you know, I was like prophecy here, boom, prophecy here, mm -hmm. boom. So let's go find out, you know, what the alternative explanation is for this, because you can't tell yourself that you studied something and came to a decision unless you've heard the best arguments on both mm -hmm. sides, you know. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to find Tovia Singer. Have you watched any yeah, of this Yeah, stuff? I know Tovia's, yeah. <laughs> I love that guy, man. And literally, when I started watching Tovia Singer, I had friends that were like, "Oh, don't watch Tovia Singer. He, he, that's like a death sentence to your faith, man." And I'm like, "Well, then I have to see it. What are you talking mm -hmm. about? I mean, not because I want to lose my faith, mm -hmm. but because what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that's that's not honest, right?" Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, once I started realizing through the help of Tovia and other Jewish rabbis on uh, online that Jesus didn't fulfill anything from the Old Testament mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, and anything that appears to any time where he appears to have done so, it's literally just a, a Christian insertion of a story that makes it sound like he might have had something to do with, you know, uh, an old prophecy. Yeah, but I the reality it, is, I was just going to say it's a supposition or it's identity politics at that point. It, it's in, yeah. yeah, it's all that it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you actually go to the rabbis and talk to them about it or listen to their explanation of things, um, you'll see that. Christians think about prophecies way differently than Jews do. Mm -hmm. And so Christians have, uh, for one, they have this sort of types and shadows mentality, mm -hmm. right? So everything that occurred in the past will happen again. And the the past, there was like this physical, weak, like this tangible, physical, like lesser truth mm -hmm. was being revealed. But it, it's only to cast uh, this, you know, this like much greater experience that's mm -hmm. coming. That it's just to tell a story about something bigger, like in a spiritual realm that's going to develop long term. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's how you end up with these people reading the book of Daniel and thinking that, you know, it's, it's the end times. You know, <laughs> um, but the reality is, you know, these prophecies were fulfilled in their time, and mm -hmm. you know, especially the prophecies. Most of the ones that people point to about Jesus, uh, people will say, "Oh, look, right there, it says." You know, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, and he won't raise his voice in the streets, and all this stuff. And and you're like, and I can't remember the rest of that chapter, but you're like, oh, this certainly is talking about Jesus. It sounds just like Jesus. But then you know, you talk to a rabbi, and they're like, no, it sounds like uh, the next chapter. <laughs> you know, it sounds like where you know. Well, I can't remember exactly which one it is, uh, which chapter, but it talks about 
it mentions Emmanuel specifically. Mm-hmm. It says, oh, Emmanuel. And in the, the, the context of where that's written, and I think it's in Isaiah, it makes it sound like he's talking about Jesus once again. But then you find out that this prophet, this prophet is speaking about an actual baby boy named Emmanuel that mm-hmm. was born in like a few chapters later. And, and we, but we look at that today and we go, oh, like this is about Jesus. And it's like, no. And th- this is where we go back to uh, the way Jews look at things. They, they, they look at prophecies are a tool for God or Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever you want to call them. They're uh, Hashem. They're a tool for him to show his people in the present mm-hmm. when, when the thing is happening that they can trust this prophet and that he's going to like, look, this is your last chance to obey me, you know, otherwise I'm going to spank you or, you know, and those are the, what prophecies usually mm-hmm. are. And, you know, when God performs a miracle for prophets, it's so that they can prove themselves to his people and so that they can turn around and, and have a, an action that occurs immediately. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when uh, the Jews didn't obey, they were carried off to uh, Babylon and that was prophesied prophesied that that would happen of course we know the prophecy was written after they went to babylon right. but <laughs> but you know that's how prophecies are supposed to work you know mm-hmm. according to that that's the, literally the whole poor purpose and point of a prophet is to come and and speak to a current modern generation and, and fix things right mm-hmm. so um this idea that these prophecies that were already fulfilled are, are going to sort of happen again like there's a prophecy cycle or like a double fulfillment mm-hmm. of prophecy is completely foreign to the jewish people to the original hebrew uh context you know so that's really a christian invention designed to make us sort of look at the old testament through that lens like oh the whole mm-hmm. thing was just building up to this moment of jesus and it's like no it wasn't um and so the prophecy part of it when that started falling apart i just decided well let's just look at it from a from a legal perspective because mm-hmm. i was torah observant and i studied the torah very much um, now the jews have a lot more of the torah than we do they have uh, the mishnah torah and they have these uh, all these additional texts and they and it's really funny i love not funny it's it's good it's beautiful the jewish people have a ton of commentaries from a lot of rabbis over the years and they're very like loosey-goosey about who believes what it's cool like you think rabbi what's his name said oh this is what's going to happen with the messiah rabbi what's his name says something different and they're all just like that's cool whereas christians were like denominationally mm-hmm. like at each other's throats you know um but uh um when i started really studying the torah and and following it myself um i noticed that jesus wasn't following the torah all the time and that it's he speaks you know, directly against it. He speaks directly <laughs> against it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that that was the really the straw that broke the camel's back. When I was like when I was like, wait a second. I went back through Matthew five, chapter five. This is where the Beatitudes are. Mm-hmm. But then after after he does the Beatitudes, he does the you know, the stuff about oaths and about uh, adultery and about retaliation. He talks about in that context. And I started noticing that he's he's literally quoting the Torah and saying, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Specifically, when he says, uh, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting Leviticus. That's what it says in Leviticus, the Torah. 
he goes, but I say, you know, if someone slaps you in the cheek, then turn to him the other one also. Or if someone asks you for your cloak, then give him your tunic also. And if they ask you to walk a mile, then walk two miles and all this stuff. And this is blasphemy to the Jewish people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They're like, what? Like the Jew. So the Torah, this is what Christians don't understand. They think the Torah was a moral thing only, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. It was an actual legal government. Mm -hmm. That's all they had. So there weren't laws about roads and stuff. There were laws about farming priests mm -hmm. kings women men individual mm -hmm. justice systems you know and, and um if someone you know i mean literally there's laws in there if someone if your cow gets loose you're supposed to help your neighbor get his cow back and if you know there's, there's if your cow kicks his cow and kills it then you have to kill it then you have to kill your cow and split the meat with your neighbor like mm -hmm. there's like they're addressing problems that they were dealing with governmentally mm -hmm. like actually like, they didn't have cops they had they had elders and they had uh the torah and they just they enacted their own mm -hmm. their own law you know so um that that understanding of the torah is something that's foreign to christians when they think oh well jesus's moral teachings replaced the moral teachings of the torah and it's like no the torah was a government right so jesus is coming in speaking against the government of the jews he's saying you know i know the torah gives you a way to make sure you don't get ripped off you know an eye for an eye tooth for a tooth stuff like that yeah. but i'm saying let people take advantage of you mm -hmm. i'm saying don't retaliate when people hurt you mm -hmm. i'm saying be a doormat that's what i'm saying you know <laughs> it, it makes literally makes no sense you know or the torah uh, he he goes on in matthew 5 and says that it's uh you know it's unlawful for anyone to divorce their wife except for uh, uh you know that she cheats on him or vice versa. They mm -hmm. cheat on each other with sexual immorality. That's mm -hmm. the only reason why you could divorce someone. But then he goes on to say, though, that if you marry a divorced woman, though, you also commit adultery. And so we literally have to this day, I've, I've met them and I, I, I actually seriously considered their arguments at one point, mm -hmm. uh, what's called remarriage adultery. And this is the actual belief that exists today, that if you've married in a of uh, um, someone who was a divorce, a female mm -hmm. who was, I shouldn't say female, but a woman who was divorced, then you actually committed adultery and yeah. they're actually encouraging you to go get a divorce again and not yeah. do that again. Like, so this is a real thing. So it's because of the words of Jesus here. Um, and the Torah doesn't, isn't even that harsh. The Torah says if the man finds something unclean in her, uh, then he can mm -hmm. write her a certificate of divorce. And mm -hmm. then of course she can go and remarry, you know, now there's a lot of reasons why the Torah is not, it, it is harsh for, you know, right. but, but in that specific instance, we have Jesus again saying, oh, we're going to do something different with that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there's several times where he does that just in Matthew five. And when I realized that I, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, he's literally speaking against the Torah. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 18, if mm -hmm. you speak against the Torah, then you're a false prophet. Mm -hmm. So there's, it, there's no reason why a Jew either either ancient or modern should mm -hmm. ever accept the teachings of jesus it doesn't yeah. make any sense which i don't know that we have the evidence to to definitively say that jesus was a real person or even existed but I, i've kind of held to the theory that there's probably an individual like jesus that did these things and was put to death and then paul again married these ideas utilized mm -hmm. that and built a religion around it um but jesus in my mind was no more of a messiah than the other messiahs you know simon of perea uh, the egyptian messiah that disappeared mm -hmm. uh, there's a number of them that the that were rejected the 
individuals mm-hmm. that came up that were supposed to free the Jewish people from uh, Rome. They were going to allow mm-hmm. them to essentially uh, find themselves and be proven to be the chosen people that time and time did not make the cut. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus was just another one. He just happened to have, like, <laughs> I keep saying yeah. it, a better PR person. He had a better PR no. guy. <laughs> no, you're right. Side. You're right. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. I completely agree with you. Have you seen, um, uh, what's it called? Caesar's Messiah? I have. Uh, Dan McClellan and I talked about that. He he is not oh, in cool. agreement of it. He says that he says yeah, that yeah. It, he says that it's kind of a fringe theory and doesn't have the evidence yeah. there. But I think it's fun to entertain and talk about. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I'm not a hundred percent in agreement with it either. But one of the things that uh, you do pick up from that is the historical context, and the historical context is correct. And the historical context is uh, that there were the Jews were expecting a physical tangible messiah type mm-hmm. leader to come from within their ranks and literally lead them in literal combat to mm-hmm. kick rome out of jerusalem and take yep. jerusalem back and take the temple back again this goes back to the maccabean revol- revolt oh, yeah, like yeah. 400 yeah yeah mm-hmm. so you know when when the maccabeans basically this is a long story but in order to get greece kicked out i think it was greece at the time they had to invite the Romans in and accept mm-hmm. the Romans like protection to get Greece out. This is like 400 years prior. Mm-hmm. So now you have Romans running things in Jerusalem. That's why on the, on the scene of the first century, you have Rome all over Jerusalem and their yeah. guards are walking around because they've invited them in for protection, but now they're also subject to some of the Roman authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Jews, the traditionalist Jews, there were two types of Jews at the mm-hmm. time. Well, probably more than that, but two main groups, right? The yeah. traditionalist who wanted to do things the old mm-hmm. way. They wanted to keep the Torah exactly how it is. And then there were the progressives, which mm-hmm. we call Hellenized Jews, like Paul. Mm-hmm. Those are those are progressives. Mm-hmm. So the, the traditionalists didn't like the progression that was occurring with the Hellenization of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to say, so they saw this happening. They saw what Paul and people like him were doing. And they're like, no, you guys are trying to invite Roman and Greco-Roman thinking into our yeah. shit, you know. <laughs> and we don't want that. We're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna tour only and stuff, and we want God, Yahweh, to come and and kick Rome out. So mm-hmm. there were literal men who said, I am He, and this is gonna be me. I'm gonna do this. One of the most famous mm-hmm. ones is a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba, um, and he was one of the ones that happened right around the same time as Jesus. I remember that name. Yep. Yeah, he literally tried to lead a rebellion and kick Rome out of Jerusalem with actual Israelite soldiers. He didn't win. No, he, he, <laughs> he, he died, right? So um, this, this is the context within which Paul introduces us to a different type of Messiah. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that still should be considered uh, for everyone because it makes a lot of sense. And this version of Messiah never ever speaks against rome in mm-hmm. fact he speaks in support of rome constantly he says to pay taxes to rome he says to support or be submissive to every governing authority mm-hmm. right um and this is completely in con- contradicting and in contrast of what traditional jews jews want it, they, it, the, the 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 what you're going into i hope i'm not going to where you're going and giving your own no conclusion, get there do it but it is that uh, what the argument is from some Christians, and I've even seen this before, even those that study the theory, is that Jesus came to end traditional Jews with the falling of the temple of 70, and that was it. And so mm-hmm. the religion that 
Paul had created was doing just that. It was pushing the Hellenized Jews agenda to end the traditional Jews to allow Rome to continue to be in power and end the temple and end what power that they did have there. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, and it serves as a really good explanation too mm-hmm. for for the you know progressive Jewish Hellenized Jews, the or the first Christians. It's mm-hmm. a great explanation as to why Jerusalem failed. Mm-hmm. Like if Yahweh was supposed to be like all powerful and with them you know, why is he not keeping his promises again? Why are they failing again? And so here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write prophecies about the mm-hmm. temple falling again, and we're going to insert a different type of Messiah. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, you can see that temptation to introduce a Messiah who is pro-Rome and anti-traditional. And that's why every time, every time a Jew, traditional Jew, walks up to Jesus, according to the New Testament, Jesus calls him a name. Calls him some name. He does. You know, he's like, "You whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites." You know, <laughs> and, and I want for the, and I want for this pin in it too, just for food for thought. Is that by the time that they were writing the New Testament and putting these in there, which we don't know that when all of them were written, we know we have copies of copies of copies. But by the time that these were put in there, we now have 400, 500 years of a constant cycle that can be observed in history, that you can write prophecy that fits what you're continuously seeing, what Jews are talking about, why messiahs are rising up, to essentially provide that to continue on throughout history and keep people within the systemic place of being controlled by others. Yep, and absolutely. we, to this day, 2,000 years later, have people arguing about the same prophecies, the same cycles, the same things happening that were evident back then mm-hmm. and they already had 500 years worth of history to kind of take and capture and say hey let's just have these continuously be on repeat and we can control people with that because mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen mm-hmm. if you've ever studied anything about social science or political theory um, or any of those things the two ways you control civilization is politics and religion amen <laughs> <laughs> amen to that dude i completely agree man all right we, we i know we went way over we're running out of time uh and Justin and I already have a whole other list of things we could talk about next time from the Essenes to the Pharisees to all these ideas and how they came yeah. about. So that would be fun to dive into. But let's go ahead and call it quits for this round. Let folks know where they can connect with you, where they can follow you, where they can hear more about your story and get your videos on all these topics. Great. Yeah. So the best way to find me, uh, my preference in order of priority would be first to go to YouTube and go to bullet holes in the Bible and subscribe to me there. I have a bunch of uh, in-depth sort of studies and teachings that I think people will enjoy watching about Jesus uh, and his Dionysian roots, about Paul and, and showing specific phrases and places where he stole Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Seneca. And then another video where I prove that Mark actually used Homer's writings as a framework to build mm-hmm. the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. And there's so much proof of that. It is mind-blowing. So... Um, I have to ask you to go to YouTube first. And also, uh, as we mentioned earlier, I'm also at bullet holes in the Bible on TikTok, And, um, I, of course you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as just Justin best. So I, I have also a website, bullet Excellent. Thanks so much, Justin. It's been wonderful having you here. And thanks to all of you for coming in and listening again. Uh, this, is, of course, has been Josh Raw here on Gaza Tomorrow. I hope you guys all go out there and be the best versions of yourself. Live your life, live your best life. And as always, do what the fuck you will.